Welcome to This Week in Theater, courtesy of the Broadway Radio Network. I am Broadway star's Jennifer McHugh. And I'm Broadway Radio's Matt Tamanini. This Week in Theater is a podcast talking about regional theater productions around the U.S. This week, we will have interviews from theater people in St. Louis, Missouri, and La Jolla, California. We will also feature some reviews from shows that I've seen in Los Angeles and Ventura, and Matt and I will discuss some other things in pop culture. Map. <laughs> Matt, how are you doing? I just called you Map. <laughs> Map, it's fine. I'm, I'll, I answer to a lot of things. Normally, people screw up my last name, not my first name, but I'll, you know, I'm used to answering to anything. That is a product of the week that it has been. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. Okay, so Matt, um, I'm going to go first with the interview this week, if that's all right with you. Of course. I got to talk to Andrew Kuhlman from Stages Theater in St. Louis. Andrew is the associate producer of their newest show, The Karate Kid, the Musical, which is a mm-hmm. world premiere and out-of-town tryout, and it will run from May 25th through June 26th before it heads to New York. So here is my interview with Andrew from Stages. Andrew Coleman, is that am I saying your name correctly? Yeah, it's a little bit of a harder U. It's Coolman. Oh, okay. Andrew Coolman. It's very, it's very German. <laughs> very German. <laughs> yeah. And you are with the Stages Theater in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, how long have you been there? So I've actually been working here at Stages St. Louis. It has been my career since I graduated from college. I stepped into a role known as the Apprentice for Theater Leadership. Um, right after my first, um, after I graduated, so in 2012, and I actually just two weeks ago celebrated my 10-year anniversary working with the company, um, and I've just risen through the ranks. I was the executive assistant to our one of our founding members, our executive producer, Jack Lane, and then just kind of moved through the world here at Stages until I'm now the associate producer. That's really cool. Can you tell everybody who is not familiar, um, what the job of an associate producer for a theater involves. Sure. So I oversee primarily the administrative side of the organization. So that would be marketing, development and fundraising, uh, finance, box office, human resources. I also work primarily with our artistic and production teams. Uh, Like right now, I'm sitting in one of the offices in our box office at the Kirkwood Performing Arts Center and sitting in on tech rehearsals for the Karate Kid, the musical, our upcoming world premiere. Um, So I like to come over here and just make sure the artistic integrity of everything that Stages does is up to par for our audiences. And then I also represent the company on our board of trustees as a liaison between the board and the staff. It's a a big job with a lot of responsibilities, but I love each and every one of them. You sound like you love your job. That's really refreshing to hear. Um, I really do love my job. You know, it's working in the arts is, is hard and it's something that to live a life that's fully supported by the arts, I, I feel honored and lucky to have that opportunity. It's something that so many people want and work for. And you do have to work really hard to make that your life. But it's day in and day out is, is a joy to get to bring live theater to the audience of my own hometown. That means a lot to me. Well, that leads into my next question. Are, you are a St. Louis native. 
I am a St. Louis native, born and raised and went away for college for a little bit and then um, came back. Tell us a little bit more about the um, theater itself, like how many seats there are, what kind of a theater it is, how old it is, the history a little bit. Sure. Uh, Stages St. Louis produces musical theater here in St. Louis. We're in the Kirkwood suburb of St. Louis. And it was actually founded in 1987. So we, we are celebrating our 36th season this year, which is something that is just really cool to be able to do, to be around for this long, continually be growing, evolving, and offer theater product to so many people. Um, We do three main stage productions a year that typically run, and each of them runs about five weeks, um, 38 to 40 performances, and they run May through October. So it's kind of an extended summer stock schedule. Um, And they range from musical theater classics, more contemporary pieces. We really like to give our audiences a taste of everything that musical theater offers. Our tagline is experience the story. And there are so many incredible stories in the world of musical theater that audiences fall in love with. And we want them to be able to come use that word again, experience those stories with us. And one of the cool things about stages is the Kirkwood community that we're in, which is a suburb about 20 minutes from downtown St. Louis. Kirkwood is such an embracive community to the arts. In fact, I'm sitting right now in our new artistic home, which is known as the Kirkwood Performing Arts Center. And it is a performing arts facility that was built by the city of Kirkwood for stages to move into. And our first season here was actually last year. But it is a beautiful mini version of Lincoln Center right here in the Midwest. It has this gorgeous um, glass-enclosed dual-level lobby. It has a main stage theater known as the Ross Family Theater. It has a black box, the Strauss black box. It also has event spaces, full backstage capabilities, an amazing second uh, mezzanine level lounge. And the main stage theater actually seats 529 people. But it is, it's a contemporary building. It is everything you would want in a performing space. And we love to call it our artistic home. We also have an administrative office, which houses our admin offices for all of our stages team. And then it also houses our stages performing arts academy, which is a a musical theater training program for students pre-K all the way through high school. And it serves more than 4,500 students and community members annually through classes, camps, outreach programs, productions, things like that. So we're really getting to touch both sides of the spectrum in a big way where we can bring in adult audiences to see our shows and experience theater as audience members. But then we're also training that next generation of not just theater artists, but theater goers and aficionados as well. So it allows us to really impact the artistic community here in St. Louis in a large way. I love the way you described that. It's, I think people tend to think of the, of Chicago as this like Midwest you know, theater go-to, but from the sounds of it, St. Louis has a really thriving theatrical community. It truly does. I I think St. Louis is sometimes looked at as um, like flyover country. And I'm a St. Louis lover, a St. Louis native, and I could not disagree with that description more. There are so many amazing theater companies represented in this town of all sizes and shapes and missions. And the work that they do is incredible. I mean, this city is home to... uh, 
not just stages, but the Muni and the Repertory Theater of St. Louis, the Black Rep, and then tons of these smaller theaters that are doing incredible work throughout the different spaces here. We have the fabulous Fox for one of the most amazingly constructed um, touring houses, I think, in the country. It is an artistic community, and our, our audiences here really support us. Yeah, let's give St. Louis the love, everybody. I think we need to go yeah. St. Louis. <laughs> so let's transition into your newest production. You mentioned The Karate Kid, the musical. This is a world premiere. Um, was this developed at stages or did you guys just get involved as the place that they're going to premiere it? We're more involved as the place where the show will premiere, but the show is actually introduced to us by its lead producer, Kamiko Yoshi, who was introduced to our executive producer, Jack Lane. Jack is a prolific Broadway producer. He's worked on Peter and the Starcatcher. He's won Tony Awards for Fun Home and uh, The Humans. He was one of the lead producers for The Prom, and I had the opportunity to work on that show with him as a co-producer. And he's actually a co-producer on on the um, nominated at Revival of Company that's out right now. So Jack and Kamiko were connected through some mutual friends in New York. And they Jack was told, I really think this show could be a great fit for stages as it tries out before a Broadway run. And in meeting the team behind the Karate Kid, the musical, getting to know them, showing them our home here in St. Louis and what it can do, what it offers, it really just made the perfect fit. So we've been involved since those stages and we've had the opportunity to attend the workshops. We've uh, housed all of the team here in St. Louis while they've been rehearsing in our performance hall at our office in Chesterfield, Missouri. And now we're in the midst of tech rehearsals at the Kirkwood Performing Arts Center. So the Karate Kid, you know, it's always, it's been beloved for, you know, close to 40 years. And then oh it's gotten gosh, this yes. whole new rebirth in the last five years with Cobra Kai. So I imagine it's a little daunting taking on something as beloved as the Karate Kid. So tell us what your feelings are about this musical adaptation and, and what they're doing with it. I have to say, sitting in this theater every day, watching these tech rehearsals and even being in at my office at our at our office where the rehearsals happened hearing the sounds seeing the sights feeling the music come to life in the moments this is not just another movie musical it is so much more the themes and lessons and the world that has been created by our creative team is so immersive and so well done. I think that audience members, those that love the Karate Kid from or Cobra Kai, and those that are being introduced to the Karate Kid through this musical are going to fall in love with this production because the themes are so universal. It is, it's a good, better than good. It's a great musical. And that's why people will fall in love with it because it's been treated as, a, a new work, which is exactly what it is. And I think people are just going to fall in love with it from beginning to end. Now, I would imagine, I don't think it's, um, you know, wrong for me to assume that there has to be a great deal of fight choreography that has to go into this. So can you talk a little bit, of, I, I was reading a little bit about your choreographers and what what that's been like to watch that sort of different type of choreography have to unfold in a production that is literally mentions karate in the title. When I went to the workshop performance at the end of 2021 up in New York, 
the thing that I left most imprinted on my brain was the choreography. Keone and Mari Madrid have brought something to life with this cast and the and the dance that they've created unlike anything I've ever seen before. It's influenced by so many different styles of dance and style and art forms of karate and things like that. It, it really is another character in the show, the, the choreography that they've created. And there is, there are a number of uh, epic karate scenes. In fact, our cast was lucky enough and our team was smart enough to bring in a, a an Olympic renowned uh, karate instructor and artist to come in and teach karate to the cast. So they had a really good uh, in-depth background and foundation in the world of karate so that they all know a same common language and can talk to one another in those same, in that world. It's when you see it come to life on stage, it really does feel like those moments are their own world in a really strong way. And I, I love those moments almost more than anything. I, I don't live anywhere near St. Louis, but you're really selling me on wanting to see this show. I'm, I'm a big sucker <laughs> for choreography. Yeah. Tickets are on sale now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as you mentioned, as at the time of recording, you're about five days away from opening. So you're heading into Tech Week. And where is your head at right now? You're the associate producer you know, everything's just about ready. So where are you at right now um, as you're five days away? I cannot wait for audiences to see this show. I want them to walk into the doors of the Ross Family Theater and they are going to be astounded by the physical world created by our designers. Then they're going to sit down and they're going to see this incredible company of actors bring a universally beloved story to life on stage with insane music by Drew Gasparini, Andrew Resnick and his team. Um, Some of the music, it really is. It just gets inside of you in that way that you can't beat. And so my favorite thing that I always look forward to when I'm attending performances at stages or any theater company is almost watching the audience. And I am so looking forward to sitting in a seat in our theater and watching the first audiences see this this production come to life. This is the first time an extended run of a pre-Broadway world premiere production has taken place in St. Louis, not just at stages, but in this city. And the opportunity to have that right here at stages and the opportunity for our team to get to see people react to this show and fall in love with it, which I know they will do, is something that I I can't even begin to describe how excited I am for that. Talk to me a little bit about the production team. So you have this set um, by, I'm pretty sure it's a pretty famous set designer, correct? It is, yes. It's actually a Tony Award winner and Tony nominee for this year, Derek McLean designed the the set. Oh, so yeah, pretty famous. So he yeah, comes I mean, in. Yeah, he, he's okay. yeah. <laughs> so he comes in and builds this set, and you're heading into tech with lighting and sound. Can you just talk a little bit about the production team and what it takes to get all of these elements, you know, to all come together cohesively in the next five days? We've been really lucky in that Stages already has an incredibly strong production team um, that is based here in St. Louis and builds all of our sets, costumes. Uh, 
props, lighting, sound, everything. And then when you combine the teams that have been put on this production from New York, you really have this amalgamation of some of the best theater and production artists in the entire world. So they've all been here for a little over a month working on building the world of the Karate Kid, the musical. And now we're getting to see the efforts of all that work come together. But I mean, this team from Derek McLean, like I mentioned, who's who designed the set to Ayako Medea, who is on the costume design, Bradley King on lighting. Kai Harada is the sound designer, Peter Negrini, projection design. It is, it's a world renowned team of people who have built the physical world of the Karate Kid. And seeing that work come to life right now is something you just can't describe. And so right now it's just kind of, you're in that tech process and tech can be, it it is, there's nothing else you can call tech, but a process. And so it takes the time of tweaking everything, but sitting in the theater, like I've mentioned, I'm seeing so many things that I'm just loving and proud of. So that's what matters most to me. And I think audiences will as well. We used to call it Tech Mountain. Um, as a director, we would <laughs> I say, like that. Yeah. "Would say, you know, next week I'm going up on Tech Mountain, so get all your questions out now." <laughs> One of my fit. There's a joke. I can't remember what show. No, it was Smash. It was the uh, TV show Smash, and I remember one of my favorite jokes from that was. I can't get engaged. It's tech week. <laughs> That's such inside baseball. It's so funny. It really is. It's, uh, it's you know, but I, I'm one of those people who I, I'm going to admit I'm a workaholic. I go to the office at 9 a.m. every morning. And then around one o'clock, I head over for tech. And I am here until the production meeting at the end of the night is over because and, and I used to do that even when I wasn't associate producer here, but just kind of as I rose through the ranks at the company, it's it's such a fascinating process. You meet so many amazing people and you see so many incredible things happening. You You truly are a fly on the wall. And with a show like this one, the team is so talented and bringing their talents to the St. Louis community and to stages. And so... It almost makes the incredibly long hours and all of that beyond worth it because the work they're doing is work that you want to be a part of as much as you possibly can. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about live theater is that we all sit in these seats in a dark house and watch the lights focused on this beautiful stage. And we all go, man, I want to be a part of that world. Um And I just think that's so special and something that doesn't happen in almost any other art form. I I remember, I always say that I, I can judge most sets by, okay, do I want to live there? And I I love that the world that we're creating for the Karate Kid, the musical is a world I would love to live in. Yeah. I I would have to agree with you that sometimes you look at a set and you're just like, I I could live in that house. And it's just a testament to the designing skill. Yeah. One of my, one of the, memories I have most of that happening was I was in college and I saw the Steppenwolf's production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Tracy Letts and Amy Morton. And I remember seeing George and Martha's house and just going, I want to move into that set. I could make that work perfectly. Can someone let me talk to a leasing agent? Let's get this going. (laughs) It was the same for me. It was in college when we did a production of All My Sons and they built this exterior porch with grass on the stage. And I was like, I could just hang out here with a, oh, with yeah. a, with a cocktail for hours. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And especially with who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, you need a cocktail. So same. 
Um, lastly, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the cast and what we should expect, because I'm sure, you know, they're taking on these roles that are very well known by generations. So can you talk a little bit about the cast and who, who you're bringing to these roles that are so well known to everybody? I am in love with our cast. They are some of the nicest actors and company members that I have ever had the privilege to work with. And I just, every day that I get to see them bringing these roles to life is something that really is impactful in a lot of ways. Um, Heading the cast as Daniel LaRusso is John Cardoza, who is bringing such warmth and realism to the role of Daniel LaRusso that it's just something I, I I, I don't know how to say more. You have to see him play this role. It's incredible. Uh, Kate Baldwin is playing Lucille, his mother. And Kate is on stage and off one of the most talented and nicest people I've ever had the privilege to meet. Um, and I mean, everyone. I could keep going through all 27 cast members if I if I had the opportunity. But the other ones I want to mention are Giovanni C plays Mr. Miyagi. And Giovanni is bringing this, I mean, such a universal and beloved character to life in such a powerful way. And then we have Alan H. Green as John Kreese and Jake Bentley Young as Johnny Lawrence, um, Jetta Durians as Allie and Luis Pablo Garcia, a St. Louis native uh, student uh, from Webster University who's bringing Freddie to life. And then just an ensemble that is made up of the best dancers, performers, singers. When you hear them sing the music of Drew Gasparini, uh, you kind of gasp. It really is a gasp-inducing show. So I'm, I love each and every one of them. And um, I can't wait to, for our audiences to get to see them too. Oh, yes. I saw Kate and Finian's Rainbow about 10 years ago. She's just remarkable. Um, she is insanely talented and Again, I have to just say, I've had so many wonderful conversations with her offstage and um, out of the rehearsal room where she's just, she listens in such a beautiful way on stage and off that I think is remarkable. One more question. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the director, Eamon Miyamoto. Am I saying that correctly? Um, It's Amon Miyamoto. Amon Miyamoto. Can you talk a little bit about working with them? Amon is fantastic. He is one of the most renowned, if not the most renowned stage directors in from Japan. And he actually was, uh, I believe, one of the first, uh, the first Japanese citizen to direct a show on Broadway. Um, and it was a production of Pacific Overtures. And Amon has created this world for the Karate Kid, the musical, along with our, 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 Book writer Robert Mark Kamen, who wrote the original screenplay for The Karate Kid, and Drew, who created the music. And all three of those areas speak so beautifully to one another. And Amon's direction and the way that he looks at moments and creates them in the most powerful way is something that is, it's it's a masterclass in directing to watch him work. Um, he, he's just fantastic. And what he brings to, to this show, what he brings to theater is something that cannot be denied. He is a talent. 
Wow. Okay. Well, the this show is going to run from May 25th to June 26th. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. And from there, headed to New York? That's the plan. Yes. Oh, that must be so exciting. It really is. I mean, it's I'm a St. Louis native, like I said, this is my hometown, but New York is my home away from home. I'm up there about once a month seeing shows and um, taking meetings, things like that. And that city, I think they're going to fall in love with this production as well. So I can't wait for our audiences to see it, but I also can't wait for Broadway audiences to see it as well. Uh, I want to add that I would love the Karate Kid the Musical is, again, it's this world premiere pre-Broadway project that we are so looking forward to. And the rest of our season is just as exciting is we're actually bringing the stage's premiere of Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights to the stage uh, later this season. And then we're following that up with the return of one of our most popular productions and most requested to come back. It is the Broadway classic, A Chorus Line. So it really is a dynamic 2022 season lineup that offers something for every audience member. It's just been such a pleasure to talk to you. I love hearing people who love theater and who love their jobs and who love their hometowns. It's just, it's a rarity these days. So it was really nice to talk to you. It was great to talk with you too. You made it so easy. And (laughs) it is, I, I fell in love with not-for-profit regional theater um, my junior year in college and it's just something that I think is so important to support because it is a, 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 an, a very American art form. And it's something that is a, a universal language that so many cities and, Amer- and citizens can talk about. And we all have, a, a, hopefully, a theater in our hometown that we saw something at or fell in love with a show at that made us go see things again and do things in a new way. And I think that it's just such a, I hate to use the phrase again, but it is, it's like, it's almost a universal language for all of us, um, the, the regional theater world. And I think that's so important and something that deserves support day in and day out. I agree. And that's a big reason we started this podcast because we're all huge fans of Broadway and huge fans of New York City, but all those shows start somewhere. So yes, yeah. Um, well, and that's what we're hoping to do with this is establish St. Louis as one of those tryout cities because the audiences here, like I said, they love the arts and they love theater and they are the perfect audience to try a new show out in front of. And so hopefully this starts a new tryout tradition right here in St. Louis. I hope so. You, you sound delightful and I wish nothing but the best for you. And I hope that you have a really successful run. Matt, you and I have talked about this, so we know that it's going to be heading to New York. Does does this interest you? Are you into the Karate Kid stuff and the Cobra Kai stuff and all that? Um, I have not gotten into the Cobra Kai show, although I I wanted to. Um, but we've had a, a number of people associated with this show here on Broadway Radio over the past six months or so. Grace Aki and I did an interview with the husband and wife team who is doing the choreography. Just on Friday, I did an interview for something separate um, with um, Richard Hester, who is actually the stage manager for the production. Um, So we've had a lot of Karate Kid tangential stuff going on uh, here at Broadway Radio, and Grace is actually a good friend with composer um, Drew Gasparini. So um, lots of love here on Broadway Radio for the Karate Kid. And I'm actually going to be spending some time in St. Louis this summer. Unfortunately, it'll be a couple weeks after this show closes, unless it extends. If it extends, I will definitely be trying to see it. But um, 
I, you know, we are both of the age where the Karate Kid movies were part of our childhood. So the nostalgia factor is strong with this one. Yeah, it sounds really fascinating what they're trying to do with it. And I really think you'd like Cobra Kai because it's really fun. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And I know you love when shows are very aware of themselves. And Mm -hmm. also it's a really quick watch. Like every episode's like 20 minutes. So I highly recommend. That's great. That's awesome. (laughs) You want to talk about who you interviewed? Yeah. um, Interestingly enough, this is a show... Uh, out in California, in Southern California, in not necessarily your neck of the woods, but far more your woods than my woods. But I spoke with composer Matt Gould, who is part of the writing team behind the Broadway-bound musical Limpica that is having its out-of-town tryout at the La Jolla Playhouse beginning on June 14th. Along with co-writer Carson Kreitzer, Matt has been working on this show for 12 years, and it has been delayed because of the pandemic. They had um, a run at the Williamstown Theater Festival in 2018, and it is finally getting not its world premiere, but its West Coast premiere and its first like legitimate major production in what should be a very heralded run at La Jolla and then eventually on Broadway. The show is directed by the great Rachel Chavkin and choreographed by Raja Feather Kelly and stars Eden Espinoza and Amber Amon. Um, the show will run from June 14th through July 24th. Um, we talked about Limpica, as well as the musical that Matt wrote with his husband, um, Griffin Matthews, uh, called Witness Uganda, which you can get the star-studded studio cast album uh, anywhere you get music. So we'll have links to both of those in the show notes. But um, here is my conversation with Limpica composer Matt Gould. Okay, Matt, I think I have to start with the fact that I have not been able to stop thinking and listening to, thinking about and listening to Woman Is since you guys released that single. And to be quite frank with you, I haven't been able to stop listening to it or thinking about it since I saw Eden do it at the Green Room 42 like two years ago pre-pandemic. So um, now that that song is officially out in the world in like single form, obviously you've had productions uh, of Limpica in the past, but like... How has that part of this journey been now that it is starting to be opened up to the world at large? Well, thank you for that kind, those kind words. There's nothing better, um, I don't know, for me as the as a writer than to hear that people actually like the thing that's out in the world. So thank <laughs> you for that. Um, how has it been? Um, I, I, it's extremely satisfying. You know, Carson Kreitzer, my, my co-writer, the lyricist of this show, of Lempica, have been working on this show for 12 years. Uh, we were supposed to have our, our sort of West Coast premiere two years ago at the top of the pandemic. And yeah. so it, it sort of has just been um, a constant sort of delayed gratification. And so it is it is a wonderful thing to get to have that song out in the world uh, and to have Eden Espinosa, who is just a dear friend and longtime collaborator singing it. She's just so glorious. And um, I just feel like we're at a, a time where, at least for me, I want theater to be about something. I want to go to the theater. I want to have an experience that moves me, that makes me think a different way. Uh, and I just love that we get to do this piece now. 
Yeah, and you are literally doing this piece now. We are talking on a lunch break from the uh, rehearsal process that you were in the middle of out at La Are you in California at La Jolla since we're talking on West Coast time? I am at La Jolla Playhouse right now in a in a in one of their theaters that I've never been and I stowed it away for this lunch break <laughs> I uh, to, to come talk to you. Yeah, no, I love it. It's it's a joy to talk about it. And uh, in, in the spirit of Lempika, I'm happy for the press. So thank yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, you, you mentioned the fact that this has been kind of a delayed process and obviously – like you said, it was supposed to happen back in, in 2020. That clearly got pushed for obvious reasons. As a writer, obviously, I know you're probably still tinkering, you know, with the show now that you've got the cast and you're getting ready for the pr production. But is that time off something that is good for you as a writer? Are you able to kind of reevaluate and say, oh, I'm going to make these changes? Or is it one of those things when you're like, you got too much time on your hands and like idle hands at the devil's playground? You know, and they, you start to like do too much and get anxious with the fact that you could be making adjustments over that period. I think that um, as much as I wish that I could say that uh, we didn't <laughs> need the time, we needed the time. Yeah. I needed the time. Uh, and it was one of those gifts. Uh, and I, I say this with a lot of humility because I don't think the pandemic was a gift. A lot, of you course. know, a lot of people, you know, have lived or not lived through a lot. Um, but it did give, I just think as artists, we need time and perspective to really understand how, what it is that we're writing about, uh, fits into the the world <laughs> and our show is so much about history and the ways that um a woman has uh or or survived uh through just ma massive upheavals world war one world war two the nazis rolling into paris um and so it it really that time that our world stopped really gave me time to look at the places in our show that I think still needed more time. And I, I, I honestly, I've said this to, to people before, but I, I don't know that as much as we could have been ready and pushed it, you can push and muscle your way through. Sometimes the universe just has a better plan. And, um, and for us, that this was a better plan because now we're ready. We're, our, our show is ready now. And, uh, and I, I just feel like, okay, I'm, I'm ready for an audience. I'm ready for people to see this. I'm ready to hear people's thoughts and, and so that in, in so many ways is so gratifying to get to put it out at a time when I feel like we're ready and not when I'm like hanging on by the skin of my teeth. We're ready. So does that mean that the show that people will be seeing in La Jolla in, I don't know, at this point, less than three weeks, I guess, is it substantively different than what was seen at Williamstown? I would say that thematically and sort of the broad strokes of the show are the same, but I think... I think that certainly as a writer, I'm, I am a better writer now than I was, hmm. uh, you know, four or five years ago, Carson is a better writer now than she was four or five years ago. I think that as a team, uh, we all understand what the show is that we're making. And as, as sort of maybe obvious as that might sound, it, it's actually really hard for a creative team to all sort of like circle up around the same idea and all sort of really feel like, okay, we are all making the same show now. Uh, and it's not like the composer's over in his space and the 
the lyricist is over there and the director's there. And it's like, no, no, we all know what the show is now. And, and that is actually like a really, um, I think just a good space to be able to, to walk in and go like, okay, we know how to fix that now. We know how to, we know what that moment is now. We know how to button that, that song now. So, um, so yeah, I guess in, in that way, the show is different. It, it, there are new songs, there are new sequences. It is better crafted. Um, it, it feels like it's ready for an audience. It feels like it's ready to, to, to put it to the universe. I'm fascinated by that because obviously you all kept in contact and were working, whether that was through Zoom or when you could do it, however that was. But what was it about you all coming together over those two years? Was it just a continued collaboration? So there was a bit of a mind meld or was it something about what happened over the course of those two years in the world at large or something that happened in the room, be it virtual or real, that helped you lock in to that story that is now what's being shared on stage? It's a good question. I think I would say yes to both. I -hmm. think yes, uh, as a team, we just had more time to, to mind meld and to uh, to circle up around the same ideas. And I think just as like human beings, um, we're all dealing, I, I think when, when, when just the world throws major, uh, be it conflict or tragedy or just event at us, yeah. we are forced to confront our humility, our mortality. Um, and so I just think that in a lot, I'll speak for myself. I don't want to speak for everybody on the team, but for myself, certainly I've had to go, you know, what are the places in me that have been holding on to things that don't serve me, that don't serve this piece? And and ironically or not ironically, because I do think we write about, uh, or at least I often write about the, you know, characters who struggle with similar things that I struggle with. Um, write what you know. You know. Right, write what you know. Even when you don't realize you're writing what you know, you're writing what you know. And, you know, Tamara Delampica is a complicated person. She's got really strong ideas and really fixed ideas about the way that she thinks the world should go. And and what the world keeps teaching her and what her life keeps teaching her is like, you don't get it your way. That's, we don't have control. We do not control the world. We can, she says, we do not control the world. We control one flat rectangle of canvas at a time. The only thing we have control over is that freaking, that canvas that's right in front of us, this, this show. And so I think that like that lesson in humility is what, what all of us have, have dealt with. And so as we've even approached each other in our collaboration, I just think there's a spirit of like, let me try to hear you. Let me hear where you're coming from. Let me understand what you're trying to get to. And I think it's in that spirit of understanding that we've come to a just a really clear, common purpose about what it is that we're trying to make up there. And without potentially asking a question that is going to re- you know require a, a five-hour answer, but what is it that you are trying to make? What is at the core of this show that you and and Carson and Rachel and Raja and everybody on the creative team is trying to put out into the world? What is that central core heartbeat of Lempika that you're hoping to share? Well, certainly it's about, uh, it is a story about, um, you know, a, a woman uh, who is an artist whose story uh, we have often not heard about. 
in in our educations. You know, we know who Picasso is. We know, uh, I know who Marc Chagall is. We know, we know some of those Van Gogh. We can, you can rattle off, you know, five or 10 male artists. We don't learn about women. We don't learn about what women, what roles women played in, in our history, in the history of art, in the history of our country, in the history of the world often. Um, and so I think that is certainly at the forefront. And, and I think larger than even just the, um, you know, themes around uh, gender, this is a show about the ways that as human beings, we think we have control. We think that we have control over uh, the way that the world turns out, over the way that uh, our fellow humans uh, sort of carry on their lives. And ultimately, at the end of the day, this is a story about the fact that we don't have control. And how do we survive in a world? How do we make peace? How do we make art? How do we um, love and, uh, and exist in a world that ultimately is not ours to control in a world where we have to just learn to live and love and enjoy life uh, and sometimes endure life uh, on life's terms. <laughs> and that's, yeah. a, that, that's a hard thing. And I think, again, that that is a theme that has come up for us as a, as, as a humanity, as a collective humanity over the past couple of years. Like, we don't get, it's not ours to, we don't, we don't have all the answers. We don't get to do everything we want. We don't, we don't have that. And I think it's, it's um, it, in, in a lot of ways, as, as we're dealing with, you know, another school shooting in our country right now. Um, and the, and the grief of that and the grief of the, the, the people who have lost loved ones and the grief of the person who was so sad and deranged that he went into that school thinking somehow that like, I, I have to imagine that, uh, that he had control or that he wanted control. And the only way for him to exercise that was to do something that insane. Um, it's a, it, it is a sickness in our, in our country that we think that we, are owed something or that we have a control that we don't. And I think that until we learn how to live in the, live with the ambiguity of life and existence, uh, we're not going to get better. And I think our show is about, is about a woman having to come to terms with that, having to come to terms with that. There's only so much you've got control over. There's only so much you can do and the rest is enough. Yeah. And it's interesting because you talk about this show being about the world not going the way that you want or your life not being as easy to manage as you want. That is not dissimilar from a theme in one of your previous shows, um, Witness Uganda, where that is, in fact, I think, you know, kind of the opening is kind of about the fact that things aren't as easy as you might think they should be. Um, and I don't know if that obviously... Those are two stories that are based, uh, at least in part, on real life. You are much closer to the real life story of of Witness Uganda than you are of Limpika. But um, it's interesting that, at least to me as an outsider, that those themes are kind of present in both of these works. Well, I, I Stephen Schwartz, writer of Wicked, told me many years ago, he said, you know, I think we just keep writing the same story over and over again. Hmm. Uh, it, it's like it, it's like our sort of karmic or cosmic sort of way of trying to make sense of the world, 
or make sense of whatever our kind of personal uh, life mission is, life goal is. And I, and I do, I think that in some ways, like thematically, they are similar. Witness Uganda is similar in that it is about someone who uh, is trying to understand how he fits in a world mm-hmm. uh, where he doesn't belong or he doesn't feel like he belongs. Trying, trying to figure out where, where is my community? Where is my spot? What is the thing that I'm supposed to be doing here? And, and, and like Tamar de Lempica, Griffin uh, in Witness to Uganda uh, comes to learn that, yeah, things are not easy. Things don't go the way you think they should go. As much as you try to muscle and control things uh, when, you're, when you're dealing with human beings, uh, other human beings have a way of doing what they want to do. And it can be infuriating and it can be um, tragic and it can be hard and sad. But ultimately, um, those those trials are the they, they are the tools that lead us to who we are. And if we can make peace with with those trials and if we can if we can come to love the even the hard parts, um, I, I think we can live a less miserable life. <laughs> I think we live a less miserable life, and I think Witness Uganda is very much a celebration of the fact that life is messy. There is there are not pretty bows on things, but life is still so freaking beautiful. It's still so beautiful, even in all its imperfections. Life is so beautiful. Yeah, and speaking of that show, recently you all put out. I don't know if is, is it technically a studio cast album uh, of the show. In the album itself is much like the show as you described it uh, beautiful it, not only does it have an incredible cast some of whom have done the show before but uh some who haven't it, really just a a incredible album and not unlike limpica in a way it didn't necessarily happen on the exact timetable that i think you probably would have imagined when you had everything down on a calendar um not for the same reasons i i i guess but um this one as well took a little bit of time to get this out into the world what does it mean now that this show has this album, not only for the logistical potential future of this show, but the fact that people are getting to share that beautiful story who might not have been able to see it, whether it was in New York or Cambridge or wherever else it was done? Yeah, I mean, I, we're living in this really interesting time right now where in the last couple of years during the pandemic, um, there has been a, a reckoning, I think, on Broadway just about the ways that uh stories told by people other than white men <laughs> um you know are are being given a voice in ways that mm-hmm. they weren't i think you know strange loop is a really beautiful example of something that like i don't know like 5 years ago i don't know if that show if if Bro- if broadway was ready to yeah. d- to do a show like that um, I mean, there's, and not because the show isn't brilliant and like amazing, but because literally, I don't know if Broadway was ready. Not even because the audiences weren't ready to see it, because Broadway wasn't ready the to industry. do it. Yeah, the people the in industry. the industry. Yeah, that that's it. And I think that you know, Witness Uganda came out at a time, you know, Barack Obama was president, and Hamilton uh, was the biggest hit in the universe. And I think, I mean, I think I heard a producer once say like. You know, racism is over. We don't have to deal with with, with stories. You know, black black people are having their day. It's it's done. So we're good now. And I think that what the last two years taught us was like, no, no, we're we're not 
it, it's not done. And there are, there's just an endless array of stories by writers of color and women and, uh, you know, queer people and who, whatever, trans, trans, trans artists who uh, haven't had a chance to tell their stories in their own voices. And I think that, you know, Witness Uganda, I wrote that with Griffin Matthews, who's my husband, who's also, you know, a, a, a Black artist. And, and I think that often during the process of making that years ago, um, his views and ideas weren't necessarily seen as being, quote unquote, mainstream enough. Because I think often, you know, the people who are on our creative team, a lot of them were white and they were like, I don't get it. And Griffin would always say, well, it's not for you. That's not for you. You know, not everything is for everyone. And I think that what, you know, making our album really was about was the chance for us and for him to get to tell that story the way he and we wanted to tell it. And, uh, and I think the gift of, of having, you know, an album is that, yeah, now anybody who wants to hear it in the world can hear it. And anybody in the world who wants to do it can do it. And, um, you know, I think that, that theater, you know, so often when you're dealing with like the very small world of those 10 blocks in New York City, it's, it's not a very democratic uh, art form. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, whoever those three families who own those those you know 40 broadway houses are they decide what's going in and what's not and and so it's a it's a it's a monopoly over there so when you get to put something into the world on an album uh you know it's a much more democratic way for for anybody to get to hear that and to decide what is and isn't worthy and so it has just been a a, a, re- a joy and a relief to get to put that out and to hear people from all over the place respond to it um you know, in the ways that they respond to it and not having to have paid $270 to see it either to, to be able to, you know, hear a song for 99 cents and go like, yeah, I like that. You know, so it's just, um, it, it, it's a very powerful way, I think, to, to put work out into the universe. Yeah, it's a it's a phenomenal album with a great group of of artists, and I highly recommend everybody listen to it wherever you listen to your music. Um, but much like that album, the company that you are working with currently in La Jolla is just absolutely dynamic and lights out. And you've gone through a couple iterations of this cast throughout the different workshops and 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 productions that you've had already but this group is is really truly special headlined by like you mentioned Eden Espinosa but all, uh, obviously Amber Amon as well as you are watching them finally dig into this piece with just a couple weeks left before an audience gets to see it are you finding new things about this story about your own work because of the talents and inspirations and insight from this cast of course, yes, of course. I mean, I think that when you're working with, you know, brilliant folks like Eden and Amber and Andrew Simonski and George Abood, like they are bringing their life experience, their cultural perspectives um, to the piece in ways that I can't because I don't have their life experience and I don't have their cultural perspectives. Uh, and so I, for me, this is the, this is the best part of the process when, when I get to, to, to really understand like what, what does transfer over from the brain of like a white Jewish gay guy into the mouth of, a 
of a, a black woman or a Latinx woman? What, 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 and what doesn't? Where are the places, where are, where are my blind spots? Where are the things that I still have to learn? And, um, and, and how, do we, how do we create a piece that, um, that can live in the bodies of, of anybody? And is that possible? Can we make a piece that can live in the bodies of anyone? Um, so, so yeah, it, uh, it, it certainly transforms in their mouths, in their voices, in their, in their uh, spirits. And, uh, and I think it's going to be an incredibly special production. Yeah. Well, I will let you go on one last question so you can hopefully eat whatever it is that you need to eat during your lunch break. Um, but as you are getting ready, you, you said that you are ready for an audience to see this show. Is there, without spoiling anything that you can't don't want to spoil, but is there a moment that you are most excited for audiences to see, whether it's, um, you know, a scene, a song, a, a line reading, a, a, a scenic thing? Is there anything that you are most anticipating finally having, you know, a couple hundred thousand people in an audience see for the first time in this way at La Jolla? I guess I just hope that people see themselves. I hope that people see in Eden or Amber or George or Andrew or Natalie um, the beauty, the messiness, the um, the grief, the pain, the the hilarity that lives in each of us. I think sometimes, you know, we get into this habit of telling ourselves like, oh, we're supposed to go to the theater and and forget our troubles. I get that. Like there's a, there's a time and a place to sort of forget your troubles. Come on, get happy. I, I was going to um, go there if you did. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. There you go. It's a, I'm, I've got my tap shoes on, yeah. but there's also there. And, and that is in our show. There, there is that. Uh, and then there's also a time for us who are so hooked up to our phones and computers and like, we're, we're already avoiding life all over the place. There's a time for us to actually like get into our lives to actually like go, no, 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 no. I actually need to like sit in myself for two and a half hours. I actually need to feel something for two and a half hours. And I think that, I I hope that our show is creating a a path through which people can experience themselves and leave the theater going like, yes, I am going to do a new thing or I'm going to, make a new choice or I'm going to take a new action. Uh, I, I, to me, that is the only reason to make theater. And, um, and I think that, uh, I, I, I think that we are, we're working to create that, that pathway for people. And I hope that that is the, the result. Well, I, I'm on the other side of the country, so I am very much looking forward to hearing about everybody who gets to see it in La Jolla. And then obviously where and whenever this show might pop up next, we are uh, very much looking forward to having that experience. So Matt, thank you so much for taking the time out during your lunch, continued success with the rehearsal process. And I hope you have a great run out in California. Thank you. Much gratitude to you. All right, again, you heard all of what Matt talked about this show. He is fired up to have an audience uh, in La Jolla to finally see this show. You can get tickets to see Limpica from June 14th through July 24th at the La Jolla Playhouse. Mm-hmm. 
So as you know, I have been getting out and about in the world again. So I actually have two shows to tell you about that I saw in the LA area over the last month. Can you believe it? That's crazy. (laughs) On episode four of This Week in Theater, I got to interview the star of this show, Chris Butler. And the name of the show is Twilight Los Angeles 1992. It's a one-man show. And he performed it in Ventura, California at the Rubicon Theater. They invited me to opening night, was not expecting a red carpet, so that was fun. Did you do the step Um, and repeat and everything like that? I did, and then they're like, will you sign a photo release for our website? And I said, oh, no, thank you. (laughs) Uh Very Um, good. But there was a gala um, beforehand with food and champagne and... And um, the theater was pretty packed. It's it's a maybe a ninety nine theater. It's it's in an old church in Ventura, which was really beautiful. And then we sat down, and wow, um, the the play itself obviously takes place the day the verdict, after the reactions to the verdict of the Rodney King trial in nineteen ninety two, and. Chris plays upwards of 35 to 37 characters, and he plays women, men, um, black people, Korean people, um, police chief um, Daryl Gates. He plays Jesse Norman. He plays all of these people, and he was absolutely remarkable. One thing I, I, I needed to call out was that he met with and worked with a bunch of people in the Ventura area to make sure that all of the subjects and the personalities he was portraying were being done in a respectful way. So he had the head of an Asian American activism group there that he had worked with to make sure that he was doing a correct Korean accent and he wasn't being offensive. He wanted to be sensitive and he also wanted to tell their story authentically he met he had invited the local president of the NAACP and all of these people were there that night so it was very emotional not only because it was one of my first ventures out into theater but also the premiere was held 30 years to the day of the reading of the verdict wow so there was a, there was a big moment in the room not only in acknowledging that anniversary but also realizing that not a lot has changed And they acknowledged that in the opening ceremony and afterwards. And um, it was, you know, I don't like to sit through straight plays at all, but I, it's a long sit. It's close to three hours and it felt like it was 24 minutes. Um, It was very well done. He he is a remarkable performer. Uh, He never broke a sweat. He took a glass of, he took a drink of water once. And I, I was just blown away by his performance. That's awesome. That, that, that was such a great experience for you being one of your first shows out. And it's a show that is not exactly light material to uh, be your reintroduction to theater. But to have a production work on so many levels uh, is, is truly remarkable and, and important and special, especially with a show as, as difficult as that one is. It really was. And, and all I kept thinking was, that was amazing. How are you going to do that every night for the next three weeks? Like, I just don't understand that kind of stamina, that kind of commitment. But that's his job. So 
Mm-hmm. He, uh, I wish, I, I, I hope they had a really good run because it was, it was something remarkable. Then I got to go to the Amundsen, which is in the Center Theater Group here in Los Angeles. It's in downtown LA in the middle of the city, beautiful music center. And we, we went to see the tour of Town, which I believe is heading in your direction soon. Um, it'll be here later this year. It was supposed to actually be the first show of our 2021-2022 season, but they pushed back the start of the tour. I think we were going to be the second or third stop on the tour. Um, but because of COVID, it'll be here, I think, in November. Um, so it'll be here in a few months, six months. So I got to see the original cast back in May of 19. And, you know, fell in love with it after you had had fall, fell all over it and said, you have to go see mm-hmm. this if, if you're going to be in town, which I did. I took your advice and bought a ticket and was overwhelmed and have been obsessed with it ever since. The funny thing is, is three years, especially after a pandemic, is a long time. And boy, did I forget a lot of what happened. Um, I visibly, no, I guess I would say I audibly gasped when, when, um, Hades produced the rose for Persephone gasped like it was the first thing I had ever seen. Um, performance wise, it's really hard to compare to the OBC, but the girls for me were superstars. Um, Kimberly Maribel as Persephone, I believe she was in the Broadway cast for a while, but she was remarkable. I thought she was wonderful. Yeah, I saw her. Tw- uh, I saw Hades Town twice on Broadway. Once um, with the whole uh, original cast, and then once with a couple understudies. And she was one of them. I saw her on as Persephone. Yeah, she's she was great. Eurydice was amazing. Morgan Shabon Green. Um, I really just liked the girls, the Fates, and those two were really working for me. Um, Orpheus was really, really good. He did seem like he struggled a little bit more. I think maybe I'm just used to the cast album, but Reeve seems to do those falsetto notes really flawlessly and it's gotta be difficult, but, but Nicholas seemed to struggle a little, but it was also the last week of the tour. So maybe that's just par for the course, but he was, his performance was fantastic. Um, Hades was great. Hermes was a choice. Um, Mm. Tony winner, Levi Christ. (laughs) I don't think, I don't, it's going to be really hard to top Andre Shields as Hermes. It's, it's one of those roles that's going to be so forever linked with him that it's going to be difficult to ever see anyone else in that part. Levi was a choice. He wasn't bad, but I don't know if he would have been my choice for that role. But overall, the production was fantastic. The audience loved it. All of my friends that I went with just adored it. And um, we were all really emotional <laughs> towards the end. I was the only one that knew it was coming. Um, so I was getting more and more tense because everyone, I was waiting for everyone to realize what was about to happen. So um, not big, not big Greek mythology fans uh, Greek, in your friend group Greek huh? people. No, but okay. it was such a fun night. There was eight of us that went and we had really great seats, and the audience was really into it. And um, the the ending song, "Raise a Glass," um, I think it, what I don't know what it's called. Yeah, "Raise a Glass." "Raise a Glass" was a, was very powerful. Uh, it was powerful in 2019. In 2022, it's it's triple powerful. 
So uh, it was a great night. Let me ask a question without necessarily spoiling anything. um, There are obviously some things that they can do on Broadway that they cannot do on tour because they have to construct the physical set of the tour for multiple different locations. And so much of the Broadway show for me was how things looked and how things worked do you did the changes that they had to uh, accommodate for the tour make much of a difference for you did you even notice them or did everything just seem to kind of work in its own right you know irrespective of what you had previously seen on broadway like i said i forgot a lot of things but Fair. it seemed it seemed very um flawless so whatever changes they made nothing stuck out to me like oh that's different the only thing is is that in new york i felt like i was on the stage and here you know when they go on tour they're in these 4000 seat houses it's not as intimate so right. moments that blew me away in new york were still great but i missed the intimacy of the smaller theater and the only other thing I want to call out is that we had a lady trombonist and she uh-huh. brought the mother loving house down and she got the biggest applause of the night and more of that, please. It was wonderful. All right, Matt. So in other pop culture news, um, a couple of weeks ago, you talked to a gentleman from the television show Severance. Is that correct? Tramel yeah, Tillman, I- is that his name? Yeah. Yeah, Trumbull Tillman. I uh, interviewed him a few episodes ago um, about a lot of things. Um, he'd done a podcast production of King Lear. He was also currently doing the show Goodnight Oscar at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. Um, but of course, being who I am, I had to ask him some questions um, about severance. And you actually did not listen to that interview because you had not yet caught up on severance. But since then, you have watched the entire first season, all nine episodes. And while we generally don't do a lot of pop culture stuff that's not directly theatrically related on this show, um, he does do some dancing and he's a musical theater guy. I saw him off Broadway in Carmen Jones uh, at Classic Stage Company in 2018. Um, so I think it, it warrants the fact that he's a former guest here. So I raved about Severance. I've raved about it basically everywhere, on every podcast, on every social media uh, platform that I can. Did not only the show, but Trammell himself live up to my hype machine? It did. And there's so few things that you hear a lot of hype about um, where you go and you go to watch it and you're like, it can't be this good. And then it's somehow better. It, it, it It's so surprising and so exciting to watch something and be like, is it really this good? And it really is. And I don't, I'm not saying any spoilers because I inexplicably avoided spoilers um, for a month. I don't know how. But yeah. he does have a dance scene, which for his character is remarkable. But as a performer, boy. <laughs> so weird. So weird. And we talked about so it in the interview. If you said- weird. Yeah, but it's perfect. Like, it couldn't have been done any better. And he told me in the interview, they spent, like, I think he said two days, you know, rehearsing and choreographing that scene. Um, (laughs) It's just, it's just another beautiful uh, addition to a show that is both visually and 
this isn't a word, but vibally perfect, where it's like nothing ever feels right, but because nothing feels right, everything feels perfect. Um, so a lot of credit goes to Ben Stiller, who directed six of the nine episodes in the first season. And, uh, you know, he's obviously had a long history of directing things dating back to, I don't know if uh, Reality Bites was the first thing he directed, but so he's not new to directing, but like, between this and another show, what was the uh, the prison break show that he did with uh, uh, Escape to Danamora? Yeah, that Escape he did from Danamora. <laughs> yeah, which also starred Patricia Arquette, who is in Severance. Like he's really turning into one of the best directors working today. So if you haven't watched Severance, it's on Apple TV Plus. Apple TV Plus is far and away my favorite streaming service right now in terms of what the content is that they're turning out. Um, I basically give everything a chance that pops up there because it is uh, really, really great. And I'm very excited for season two of Severance. And I pray that this comes out sooner rather than later, because I don't know how long I can wait. I listened to an interview with Ben Stiller recently, and he said his revelation with Escape from Denimora was that when he directs and he's not in it, it's a whole other world. Now, that may seem obvious, but it always takes yourself to realize what you can do when you just make the slightest change. And so him being behind the camera and being one of the creators of this, visually, the shots are absolutely exquisite. And, yeah. you know, Matt and I are TV and film buffs. So both of us highly, highly recommend this series. Yeah, and let's go to a another streaming original that uh, I want to mention. I mentioned it briefly on uh, today on Broadway, but I do want to talk about it here because this is something that is available for theater fans across the world, across you know the United States. So it is kind of in the purview of this week in theater. And I watched the HBO HBO Max documentary Spring Awakening. Those you've known. Uh, I was at the benefit concert back in November when the original Broadway cast of Spring Awakening reunited to do basically the whole show. Uh, we didn't really realize it going in uh, because they didn't give us a ton of details. It wasn't just the songs. It was basically the entire show, they all just sat on stage, the entire OBC, the entire original band for the show. It was directed by the show's original director, Michael Mayer. Um, it included Jonathan Groff, Leah Michelle, Skylar Aston, John Gallagher Jr., uh, Lauren Lolo Pritchard, um, Lily Cooper, Jen Damiano, Gideon Glick, Krista Rodriguez, um, and so many more. Uh, it was very cool to watch this documentary because not only did they have a bunch of the performances from that concert, but they also interspersed them with performances from the original Broadway production, um, performances from like some of the press that they did back then for the show as well, as well as a ton of behind the scenes rehearsals for, uh, for the original runs and for this. And then a lot of interviews obviously as well. There were some things that Leah Michelle did not need to tell the camera, which if you, are in the theater social media world you probably saw being memed quite a bit. We did not need to know how graphic her relationship with uh, Jonathan Groff was, but it was a choice. Um, but it was really cool. And the thing that I took away more than anything was 
just how lovely a human being Jonathan Groff is because there's multiple shots of him. Like, um, I think it was the first rehearsal. And if you know the show, uh, Leah Michelle's character opens the show singing a song. Uh, and during that first rehearsal, they opened rehearsal with her singing the song and Groff is sitting next to her, just weeping openly. Um, not only is because this show is so important to him, he is obviously incredibly close with Leah and, uh, it's uh, it was just really moving, and this is not a show that I necessarily love. Um, it's a show that I could honestly take or leave as a show. I think the album is really great. I think there's a ton of fantastic songs on the album, um, but to see everything that has gone on for this cast, so many of these people have gone on to have phenomenal careers, whether on stage or screen, and some of them in, in music as well, um, was really kind of fun to see the trajectory of where it all started especially since so many of them started when they were teenagers so um spring awakening those you've known now streaming on hbo max it is an absolute must see for theater folks it's not going to change the world it's not a documentary that is going to be especially eye-opening but for the performances and the archival footage alone would would definitely recommend watching this one and i plan to um, like you said before, Apple Plus and HBO are, are kind of my go-tos right now. So, yeah. but it, uh, we have a full weekend of content, and but I definitely plan on watching this within the next few weeks. So I'm excited about uh, 95% of the cast you mentioned. Okay, well, thank you for joining us on This Week in Theater. You can follow Broadway Radio at Broadway Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Twitter and Medium at Eponine Q and Matt on Twitter at BWW Matt. You can always reach out to us with suggestions for regional theater productions, and we will see you next time. <laughs>